to the book of Acts, and we're not going to cover the entire chapter, but we are going to cover, this thing's weird, we are going to cover verses 1 through 48, which is nearly the entire chapter. So Acts chapter 13. It has always been the design of God to win all the peoples unto himself, not just the Hebrews. His covenant has always been for all men, not just the Hebrews. The Hebrews were the chosen people through whom he would make himself known and by whom the Messiah would come. But the plan of salvation was for all men, that all men would be his peoples. Jesus himself knew this and spoke of this. And it was Luke, the author of our book, the book of Acts, that recorded what Jesus spoke of this in the gospel he penned, the gospel of Luke. Jesus himself spoke of this fact that the gospel is intended for all men, including the Gentiles. And as we've seen in the book of Acts, the Jews were having a huge hard time accepting that. Look at Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. The Gospel of Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30, and look what it says. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, unquote. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? They were amazed. He said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. None of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So he lets them know that the gospel is going to be for the Gentiles also. And he uses two Old Testament examples to point them to this fact. Verse 28 says, So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out. Remember just a few moments ago, they were all, Wow, what gracious, wonderful words. (laughs) Now all of a sudden, they're thrusting him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built. 
that they might throw Jesus down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Jesus himself spoke of this matter, that the gospel would be for all men, for the Gentiles too. In this chapter, chapter 13, here in Acts, we see the confirmation of all that Jesus was revealing way back when he entered the temple to commence his earthly ministry. Here in chapter 13, we see the actual mission to the Gentiles commenced. There have been many incidents already pointing to this end here in the book of Acts, and of course the great confirmation of it all with Cornelius and Peter that the gospel would be to the Gentiles too. But now the actual commencement of the mission to the Gentiles is taking place here in Acts chapter 13. So why don't we stand up and we'll just read the first five verses. We will be covering the first 48, but let's read the first five. It says, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. The title of my sermon is Mission to the Gentiles Commenced. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we have in your scripture to look at the early saints of old and their faithfulness to you, to make you known to men, to take you to the ends of the earth. And Lord, we just ask and pray that you help me to set forth that which you've given me to declare, and Lord, that you would use it, more so even, in the hearts and minds of all the hearers, so that their love for you would be deeper and their desire to serve you greater that you would be glorified through the life of every person here this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You could be seated. In verses 1 and 2, the scripture says that now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, Amazing term, right? As they ministered to the Lord and fasted. Literally can be ministering to the Lord when you take time to be with him, to spend with him in prayer and fasting. The Holy Spirit says to them, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Here in the midst of such an awesome setting, the brethren are dwelling in unity. That's what makes it an awesome setting. The brethren are dwelling in unity. Psalm 133, verse 1 declares, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard. That doesn't mean much to us. In fact, that might seem like, ooh, right? Beard, oil in my head, oil running down my beard. This was actually a wonderful thing 
to them. It was a goodness. And this is what the early brethren there in Antioch were experiencing, this unity. Those awesome, rare, and two short-lived times where all are one in heart and mind, in function and purpose, in zeal and desire. Think how awesome it would have been to have been there with these cast of characters listed in verse 1. Antioch had become to the Gentile Christian world what Jerusalem was to the Hebrew Christian world. Five brothers of stature are mentioned here. And one of them, Menaean, shows that the gospel was even impacting the homes of the magistrates. Because as it says there in verse 1, Menaean had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. These were surely blessed days, and we know from Scripture that it went on for a whole year, this awesome time. Now remember, it was Barnabas who had brought Saul to Antioch. Saul didn't just happen to stumble there. Barnabas actually sought him out and brought him there. The Gentiles were believing the word of the Lord in Antioch, and Barnabas wanted Saul there because he had heard the Lord had called Saul to make himself known to the Gentiles. So he knew that this brother, Saul, would have known some things and how to rightly understand this gospel meant also for the Gentiles and how to do mission and ministry to them. Remember back in chapter 9, look there, chapter 9, verse 15. When the Lord blinded Saul and sent Ananias to go to him, The Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he, talking about Saul, is a chosen vessel of mine, look what it says, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, or the magistrates, and to the children of Israel. And we talked about the significance of that order. So Saul was called of God specifically to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And look what it says in verse 27 there in chapter 9. It says, But Barnabas took him, talking about Saul, and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas had been involved in Saul's life previous to this. Remember the apostles were like afraid of this guy? Was he truly converted? He was like, um, who's that? guy who just converted, Cain West or something like that? Kane, I don't know how to say all that stuff. But anyways, I'm totally out of that picture. Kane West of his day. Is this a true conversion or is this a false conversion? So the apostles were a little leery of Saul and it was Barnabas who brought him to them and said, no, the guy's legit. (laughs) He's cool and he loves Jesus, (laughs) you know. So here he is seeking him out again, and he brings him to Antioch. God's building something in Antioch, and he, Barnabas, wants Saul to be there. So the Lord is now here in verse 2 of chapter 13 of Acts, calling them both, these two brothers, Barnabas and Saul, to mission to the Gentiles. Verse 2 doesn't say what precisely they were called to, does it? Just look at it there. It doesn't. But it would soon be apparent 
It was mission to the Gentiles. That's what they were called to. Verses 3 through 5 state, Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. They had to sail because it was an island sitting out in the Mediterranean Sea. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. They also had John, who is known as John Mark, as their assistant. The good, blessed days would be coming to an end. Here, as they commenced on this first missionary journey, was the seedbed for a deep dispute that would end Saul and Barnabas' relationship. These two brothers who were welded so close together by the Lord. John, mentioned here, is John Mark. Colossians 4.10 reveals he was Barnabas' cousin, and he would be the cause of the deep dispute between Barnabas and Saul. And we will talk more of this in chapter 15. But suffice it now to say that John Mark was part of the team. Verse 5 makes it clear he was part of the team as a helper, an assistant of sorts. He would be helping with certain perfunctory matters and most likely mentoring at the same time. The mission journey begins by the team, it says here, going to Cyprus. This may have been because Barnabas himself was from Cyprus. We know that from Acts chapter 4, verse 36, that Barnabas was from Cyprus. And this would be well-known terrain, therefore, for them to begin their mission journey help break things in. Cyprus, of course, is an island and is an island of great importance at this time as it was situated on the shipping lanes between Syria, Asia Minor, and Greece. And it is still there today, believe it or not, sitting out there in the Mediterranean Sea, south of Turkey and west of Lebanon and Syria. Verse 6 says, Now when they had gone through the island, the island of Cyprus, to Paphos, Paphos was a city on the island. They found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. So Paphos is the city on the island, and there's a false prophet there. Understand that there has always been false prophets. There are false prophets today, and there will always be false prophets. Always. And this guy was with the proconsul. Look what verse 7 says. Who was with the proconsul? Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. A proconsul was a Roman magistrate. Cyprus was a Roman senatorial province at this time. And Sergius Paulus was its proconsul. He would be the equivalent of what we would call a governor of a state. And the scripture says this magistrate sought to hear the word of God. Luke says he's an intelligent man. Notice that there? In other words, he had discernment. He was sagacious. He was wise, a thinking man, a man of understanding. And he wants to hear the word of God a magistrate that desires to hear God's word. 
Would to God we would run into more of those in our day. But as is often the case, someone desired the magistrate not to hear the word of God, namely bar Jesus, the false prophet. Look at verse 8. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Away from the faith. It's not as much as translated, but rather he was known as Elymas. Elymas means sorcerer, magician, fortune teller. He was a bad guy doing bad things. So he wanted to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul would have none of it. Saul wasn't going to put up with that. Look at verses 9 through 11. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. He had been blinded. Now in these three verses, we see the first time Paul is ever referred to, uh, Saul is ever referred to as Paul. This is the first time ever he's referred to as Paul. He will be referred to as Paul by Luke for the rest of the entire book of Acts. Paul is the transliteration of the Hebrew name Saul to the Greek name Paul. This is fitting for Saul to now be called Paul, as the Lord has called him to the mission to the Gentiles. Most of those around him would call him Paul from this point forward. And notice how he tells Elymas that he is full of all deceit and fraud, and then calls him a son of the devil, and an enemy of all righteousness. Most American Christians have created in their minds such a soft and milquetoast Jesus and God that they could never imagine such words coming from someone, quote-unquote, full of the Holy Spirit. Because when Paul said those words, the Scriptures make clear he was full of the Holy Spirit. Look at the words of Christ himself. At times. Such talk is, at times, the result of one being full of the Holy Spirit, calling one a son of the devil and an enemy of all righteousness. Christ himself spoke such kind of words. The prophets themselves spoke such words. This soft, nicer-than-Jesus Christianity needs to be repudiated, and the Scriptures do repudiate it time and again. Yes, the same Holy Spirit that teaches us to be gentle at times demands we rebuke and be harsh. Never for personal reasons, but when the truth is at stake. And Elymas is blinded in the midst of this because of Paul's proclamation. He becomes blinded. He's 
belittled. He has to seek someone to lead him by the hand. And most American Christians today would think Paul rude and unchristian for what's happening here. And they would be the ones who would take Elymas by the hand. But only to aid and abet him in his sin. To console him in his rebellion against God. How do I know this? Because that is what most Christians do these days for all sinners. Rather than rebuke their sin, rather than love them truly and call them to repentance of sin, they aid and abet the sinners in their sin. So awful is this condition that American Christianity is busy rewriting 2,000 years of biblical interpretation in order to accommodate men to the sin of homosex. They had already accommodated them to the sin of adultery and remarriage and to the sin of fornication, the churchmen have. Most churches, most Bible-believing churches, teach the Christian of today to conform to such things as birth control, to egalitarianism, to the government schools, to the murder of the preborn, to statism at large. Most churches today exist to affirm the lifestyles of Americans not to confront the idols of Americans and call them to repentance and faith in Christ. The church in America has become a great whore, and whoredom abounds in our nation via the churchmen and the pulpits. It is evil, it is wicked. They make twofold children of hell. So whereas modern-day American Christians would condemn Paul, or at least think ill of him, Look at the result in verse 12. Look at the result in verse 12. It says, Then the proconsul believed. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Look at the result. Most Christians today are just looking for people to attend their social clubs. They're moose clubs, because that is all their churches are. And the people love it that way. True Christianity looks for men, produces men who turn from their sin, believe in Jesus, and want to see his rule applied to every area of their life and every area of life. That's what true Christianity hunts for looks for, and produces within men. Wholly opposite of what's currently in vogue in American Christianity. And note this as we move on in the text, that the first convert to the first mission to the Gentiles was a magistrate. The first Gentile who sought to hear God's word was a magistrate, and the first convert was a magistrate. And yet all of American Christendom would tell us, have nothing to do with civil government. Avoid it like the plague. And yet as we've gone through the book of Acts, we've noticed they were always interacting with the magistrates, instructing them. So unlike American Christianity, who wants to play with its little spiritual lint and its spiritual navel, off in the corner of the culture somewhere. And it's a sickness to watch. Verse 13 says, Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, talking about John Mark, 
departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. This little thing of John Mark going back to Jerusalem would turn into a really big deal. It will lead to a deep dispute between Paul and Barnabas. As I said earlier, we will look into this matter completely when we get to chapter 15. But this matter about him, quote-unquote, returning to Jerusalem, see it there in verse 13? Returning to Jerusalem, think on that. Jerusalem. He came from there. He was not part of the crew at Antioch. And this will prove important as to why the deep dispute took place. Consider that what I call a teaser. So you'll come back and hear what chapter 15 reveals. Verse 14 says, But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. Perga was a port city on the mainland of present-day Turkey, north of Cyprus, sitting out there in the Mediterranean Sea. And Antioch and Pisidia was north of Cyprus on the mainland in present-day Turkey. North of Perga and north of Cyprus was Antioch and Pisidia. That's where they're at. It's present-day Turkey. And in verse 15 it says, And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. (laughs) Can you imagine such an opportunity? They've just begun this mission to the Gentiles. Here they are amongst Jews and Gentile God-fearers in the synagogue, and the rulers and leaders of it say, Hey, you guys got anything to tell us? (laughs) They had a lot to tell them. (laughs) And from time to time, God gives us precisely those kind of divine appointments where we are able to say things we never dreamed of. I remember I went to a funeral once of a guy I knew who used to come out and speak for the preborn. He was a brother in Christ, but his whole family was Roman Catholic. And when I got there, his mother comes up to me and shakes my hand and says, I want you to speak. I want you to say something. He would have wanted you to say something, and I want you to say And I said, oh, no, I don't want to say anything. I was going through a rough time. had been abused and beat up by... Christian people, (laughs) and so I was not in any mood or shape, so I thought, to say anything. But as we've often learned over our lives, when we are weak, then he is strong. Amen? And so I told her, no, this is a time for family. You all just speak. I, I will say nothing. Five minutes later, up comes some guy from the church, takes me in the back room. He says, you're speaking. You have five minutes. The priest says... As a Protestant minister, you are forbidden to say anything theological. I didn't say okay. I didn't say yes, sir. I just stood there and looked at him and did not answer. And he went on with telling me what it would be like. So I went in and I'm thinking, why, God? I'm weak. I'm beaten down. I just wanted to be left alone, come to this funeral. Now I have to get up and speak. There was probably 300 people there. So as I'm sitting there, God just pours into me exactly what he wants me to say. I mean like that, quickly. 
So I jotted down a couple words just to keep my thoughts straight. And then the priest gets up there and gives his dopey little eulogy. And I'm not kidding you. Everything, everything he said was exactly the opposite of what God gave me to say. How's that even possible? Now I'm really thinking, why God? I just wanted to come here, pay my respects, and leave. So when I was done, I went up and I declared the truth of the gospel to all those people. And when it was over and everyone was leaving, the priest was at the back door shaking everybody's hand. And I put out my hand and he just did not put his hand out and glared at me that if he could put a knife in my chest and get away with it, he would do that. And I just put my hand down and walked past him. And as I was walking across the lawn, this woman came up weeping and grabbed a hold of me and thanked me for what I said. She was the man's brother who had died. They were the only true Christians in their family. And she couldn't thank me enough for saying what I said and presenting the gospel to all who had gathered and how much that would have meant to him. God gives us these divine appointments. I remember one time I went to La Crosse, University of La Crosse, over by the Mississippi River because Dan and Bill Belint had died. And there was this young football player who Bill Belint had spent hours, I mean hours, talking to about the Lord and the gospel. And he was a hulk of a man, a big, massive dude. You would always recognize him if you saw him again. Bill died the very next day. I went back two weeks later by myself, drove there in order to find that young man. I wanted him to know what happened to Bill, and I wanted to talk to him further about the things of Christ. So I went by the the clock tower, you know, there at the university, and I sat there because it's like the busiest spot and everybody comes through there. I figured, that's one guy you can't miss. I will see him and I will talk to him. And the class soon broke, and everybody's going everywhere. I didn't see him anywhere, and I'm kind of sitting there on the bench thinking, well, I'll stick around for another class break, and maybe even another one after that. I'll see him eventually. Well, as the class had ended, all of a sudden all these females are gathering in, like 50 to 60 of them. And they're all just standing there, and they're all quiet as church mice. And all of a sudden it hit me. Oh, it's the day of silence. Where all the homos, sodomites and lesbians, say nothing because there's the great persecuted, suffering ones in our nation. And as I sat there, I realized, as I looked both ways, and you could hear birds chirping, it was so quiet, that I had a duty in the sight of God to preach. And so I got up, opened my Bible, and I gave them a seven to eight minute sermonette. You know, sometimes we can talk too much. Bob Brown will tell you if you go into a court of law, you know you can talk too much. <laughs> you can say too much. Just say what you need to say and shut your mouth, you know. But we can do the same with preaching. Sometimes you can just say too much. Seven to eight minutes was all I needed. And they stood there. And I could see God working in the hearts of some of the younger women and the older women who I knew were professors. You could tell they wanted to scream. But it was the day of silence. 
God gives us these times. And this was a time that Paul and Barnabas had found here in this town. Here's the, the leaders of the synagogue coming up to him here in verse 15. Men and brethren, if you have any words of exhortation for the people, say on. <laughs> it's a divine appointment. And so Paul gives his sermon. Well, let's read through this. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God. Why do you say, and you who fear God? Because there were Gentile proselytes there. They were not part of the men of Israel, but they feared God and they were interested in Judaism. And he says, listen, remember that is what God intended, right? To win all the peoples unto himself. In the Old Testament, he used a stationary racial group called Israel. In the New Testament, he uses people of all nations, tribes, and tongues. In the Old Testament, it was stationary one place, Israel, and all the other nations would see that nation. Now, in the New Testament, we're all to go out to the nations. Amen? So there's these God-fears there. And it says, The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt and with an uplifted army brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel and the prophet. In other words, he's giving them history of the Israel people. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus After John had first preached before his coming, talking about John the Baptist, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, To you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, He also spoke thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he, whom God raised up, 
saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. He preached the same thing to the proconsul earlier here in chapter 13. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, making available to men forgiveness of their sins. And that's precisely what Paul preaches here in this town of Antioch and Pisidia. Verse 40 says, Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. And that was his sermon, ending with a warning for them to believe what he had just preached and not reject the message of the gospel. And look what happens in verses 42 through 45. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Some had believed. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. And in the midst of this setting of the Jews rejecting and the Gentiles begging. Paul makes this great declaration in verses 46 and 47. The great declaration or motto of the mission to the Gentiles. It says, Then Paul and Silas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first speaking of the Jews, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, I have sent you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Amen? We see fully what Paul and Barnabas were called to was mission to the Gentiles. So we began this sermon with Jesus declaring in Luke 4 that the Lord's word and gospel would be taken to the Gentiles. And here we end the sermon seeing that this has been fulfilled. We see it happening here in chapter 13 with this missionary endeavor. His law, word, and gospel are being taken to the Gentiles. And realize what has happened here, scholars point out, became the pattern which subsequent churchmen and missionaries would follow. Because here in Acts 13, the first Gentile desirous to hear the word of the Lord was a magistrate. And because here in Acts 13, the first Gentile convert of this mission endeavor was a magistrate. 
Subsequent churchmen and missionaries saw this, coupled with Psalm chapter 2, as a precedent that they should first go to the magistrates when doing mission to the Gentiles. So, the apologists of old and the missionaries of old often and routinely were seen to first address the magistrates, to first go to the magistrates. Armenia becoming the first nation to embrace the Lord and his law, word, and gospel. And it continued from there. May we, brothers and sisters, do the same. May we take his law, word, and gospel to the nations of the earth, to the Gentiles. May we do it. Stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer.